An anonymous author wrote these insightful words about apologies. I say I'm sorry way too much. Sorry when someone bumps into me. Sorry when I don't do what someone wants. Sorry when I do what I want. Well, sorry, but I'm tired of being sorry. There's a lot of confusion today, and always has been, about repentance. Is being sorry the same as repenting? Today I want to consider very briefly the subject of biblical repentance. And even though the word is not used here in Jonah chapter 3 about the people of Nineveh, it's pretty clear that they did believe in God and repent from the king on down. So let's ask God to change our minds, our thinking about repentance according to the Bible. First of all, a couple of definitions. The Bible never mentions the terms repent of sin or repentance of sin. But there are three words used in the Bible that are translated repent in most versions. It's helpful to know what those words mean. One of those Hebrew words is the word shub. This word is only translated as repent two times in the Old Testament. We also find uh, the Hebrew word nakam. It's translated 44 times as repent. Most often this Hebrew word shub means to turn or to return. Let me give you an example. Ezekiel 18 verse 30. God is speaking to His people and says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, according to everyone his ways, says, says the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions. In that verse, the word translated repent and the word turn are the same Hebrew word, shub. Often when this word is used in the Old Testament, instead of meaning repent in our classic thinking of the word, it means simply to change your direction. Traveling direction specifically, like returning to the camp of Israel. Most of the references have to do with Israel turning toward or away from God. And then secondly, there's this word nakam. Besides the 44 times it's translated as repent, it's also translated more often as comfort or ease. It's only translated as repent 38% of the time that it's used out of hundreds of times. The word shub that we already referred to is only translated repent 1% of the time that it's used. And neither of those words seems to have the same meaning as the New Testament word metanoia. We talk about that word just for a second. So shub primarily means turn or return. Nakam primarily means comfort or ease. Metanoia, and you don't need to remember these words, and I know you won't after today, is made up of two parts. There's the first part, meta, which means change, or literally after. It's like our medical word metastasize, meaning change in size, for example, of a cancerous tumor. And then the word noia, or noeo which means the mind or the thoughts or the thinking process. So the word could most easily be translated as an afterthought or as thinking again. 
or literally a change of mind. That's the meaning of metanoia, a change of mind. Again, neither Old Testament word has that thinking it over or that now I get it concept or meaning. I said earlier that the term repentance of sin or repent of sin is not found in the Bible, but the concept definitely is. And almost always it involves believers or the children of God turning in their mind, having a change of mind about their sin and how it impacts their fellowship with the Lord Jesus. I don't think anyone anyone would be surprised if I told you this morning that many of God's people need a desperate change of mind about their sinful lifestyles. But I want to stress that the primary meaning of biblical repentance is the important issue of changing our minds about spiritual things so that we think like God thinks when it comes to the critical matters of daily life and of our walk with the Lord. Starting with a change of mind that brings salvation through Jesus Christ. Again, it's no um, mystery that a lot of Christians today, at least professing Christians, are living far short of what they could be with God's power. George Gallup, a famous Gallup pollster, in his book Vital Signs says, and I quote, there's little difference in ethical behavior between the churched and the unchurched. There's as much pilferage and dishonesty among the churched as the unchurched. And I'm afraid that applies pretty much across the board. Religion, per se, he says, is not really life-changing. People cite it as important, for instance, in overcoming depression, but it doesn't have primacy in determining behavior. That's sad. But that is the reality today. To drive home this New Testament meaning of repentance, a change of mind, I want us to think about three illustrations of it. Two of them in our text this morning in Jonah 3, and then one in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's talk first of all about Jonah. <coughs> Excuse me. Jonah definitely had a change of mind from the first call of God in Jonah 1 to go to Nineveh, and the second chance call in Jonah 3 to go to Nineveh. The first time God told him to go to Nineveh, he said nothing. But he actually said, no, I'm not going by his actions in going the opposite way instead of walking with God in obedience and going to Nineveh. After three days in the belly of this great fish and after his heartfelt prayer in Jonah chapter 2, he responded to the second chance with, now I get it. God really does want me to go to Nineveh and preach what he tells me to preach, so I will go this time. But I can't imagine that Jonah's thoughts were anything like the little boy who prayed in his prayer of confession to God. God, I'm so sorry. I made a huge mess in my room, but I sure had fun doing it. Jonah didn't have any fun running from God. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And then let's talk about the Ninevites. The main focus here in chapter 3, besides the focus on the graciousness of God is on the people of Nineveh, the entire city. Again, even though the term repent or repentance isn't used here, it is clear that they had a major change of mind about God that resulted in a change of lifestyle. 
I want you to notice something with me very important about the subject of repentance. All throughout Scripture, believing is the key to a right relationship with God. All of the references in the Bible to believing and being in a right relationship with God focus on faith, on believing. Genesis 15.6 says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here in our text, in verse 5, notice what it says. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. That was a total departure, a change of mind from their previous lifestyle where they were focused on the false gods of the Assyrian belief system. And the actions that followed, and we'll look at them in just a second, were the fruit of that repentance. Those actions demonstrated that they really had had a change of mind about God. So let's, let's look at their actions that demonstrate the fact that they could say, in effect, now we get it. First of all, verse 5 says, they called a fast and put on sackcloth. And the words from the greatest to the least of them, I believe, refers to the fact that it started with the king and then all the way down to the lowest of the low. So verse 5 becomes the broad statement of what happened. Then verses 6 through 9 become an expansion of that, specifically as it relates to the king. The detail shows that the king had a change of mind and heart. He stepped down from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He put on sackcloth, which is a very coarse, rough material, much like burlap, made from goat's hair in those days. All of that, plus sitting in ashes, the verse says, verse 6, a sign of great grief. All of that showed humility, and the rest of the people followed suit. They bought into it. The king issued an edict in which he said, everyone, everyone will respond by fasting and wearing sackcloth. Even the animals. It's an interesting thing. The animals of that culture were very closely tied to their owners, of course. Their livelihood was made from their animals. And so putting sackcloth on the animals was simply a sign of we're all in this together. By the way, I'm sure you know that a human being cannot go more than four or five days without liquids. So these people from King Asherdan III down to the street person had a change of mind that resulted in some action that demonstrated that change of mind. By the way, Jonah's short sermon, we looked at it last week briefly, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That sermon contains nothing, as far as the record goes, about pointing out the sin of the people. Did you notice that? He doesn't tell them, this is what you've been doing wrong. These are your specific sins. King, this is what you've been doing. No. He doesn't point out their sins, as far as the record goes here. And I think there's a point to that for today as well. And that is, we know what our sins are. We don't need someone to tell us with a finger in our face, you did this, you did that, you committed this sin, you did this wrong. 
We know what our sins are. You know what yours are. I know what mine have been in my life. They knew what they'd done wrong. I believe that deep in the heart of every person is a knowledge and awareness that my life is not what God wants it to be. Sin is there. Verse 9 speaks of the hope that the king had and that the people had. Namely, that God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we shall not perish. I'm personally convinced that God responded right away to their change of heart and mind. And He didn't bring on them the destruction that Jonah had preached about. So some people ask this question. We've talked about Jonah. We've talked about the Ninevites. Some people ask, well, didn't God repent? Didn't God change His mind? I want to tell you today, I don't believe that's the case from the text. The word used here in the New American Standard Version is relent, meaning he backed off from that. But what I really think happened here is clear is that God did do what He wanted to do to be gracious to them. So He didn't change, they changed. If God had said once they had uh, evidenced a change of mind and showed it by their actions, if God had said, I don't care. These people, are they've had it. I don't want them anymore around. I'm going to destroy them. If God had done that, that would have been a change of His character and nature. No, God never changes. And what exactly happened is the people repented. And that's what God wanted. The Bible is clear that God never changes. Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that He should lie, or the Son of Man that He should repent. And James 1.17 in the New Testament says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation, no change, or shadow caused by turning. Even Jonah... Get this now. Even Jonah knew that God would back off. Look at chapter 4, verse 2, just for a second. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. Notice, for I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah said, I knew you were going to do this. That's why I didn't want to go in the first place. We'll talk more about that next week. God doesn't change. The people of Nineveh changed. And God was gracious and faithful to respond. Aren't you glad today that God is a responsive God, though not a changeable God? He's responsive to us. And I thank Him for that. And then the example of the Corinthians, very briefly. A New Testament early church. They're an example of this now-I-get-it kind of thinking that I believe is biblical repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, you didn't turn there, but the Apostle Paul reminds them of a letter that he sent them dealing with some wrong attitudes in the church. And Paul says, I feel like this made you sorry, and at first I was sorry that it made you feel sorry, but in another way, I think it was a good thing. And then he says this 
to verses 9 and 10. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of metanoia, change of mind. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. And then he says, and this is very important, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. So the right kind of godly sorrow causes in us as believers that sense, now I get it. God's been offended. And I'm sorry for what I've done. And I want to claim God's forgiveness and move on. We'll talk more about the sorrow of the world that passes for repentance in just a moment. But Paul's point here is that the Corinthians responded well to his letter. They got it. And it brought about fruits that correspond to biblical repentance. But I want to be clear about what repentance is not as much as what it is. You'll notice in your notes it says three efforts that are not repentance. I want to emphasize that word efforts because all false repentance is just that, human effort, a failed attempt on the part of man to make himself favorable to God, to make himself right with God through human work, whether that's feeling sorry for ourselves or shedding a tear or reforming our lifestyle. Let me talk about feeling sorry. Merely... Feeling sorry for sin, sorry for something we might have done that might have offended God, is not the same as biblical repentance. Sometimes feeling sorry for what we've done is so temporary, and and the fact is we're right back doing what we did before. Only the next time it's a little tougher to feel sorry, and the next time it's even tougher, and the next time it's even tougher to feel sorry. We start getting into a pattern. We get used to it. So feeling sorry is not repentance. Many of us, our parents, remember saying to our children, now tell your brother you're sorry. Tell your sister you're sorry. And often, reluctantly, they do so. We know what that's like. Can we ever be sure they were truly sorry or were they just obeying mom and dad's command to say, I'm sorry? And it begs the question, how sorry do I have to be? That's an important question. Biblical repentance is not measured by feeling. It's measured by a focused change of mind that leads as fruit to action. When the now I get it translates to, all right, here's what I'll do. Now that I know. Shedding tears... Secondly, that may accompany repentance, but tears themselves do not define repentance. Some of you remember that classic Christian hymn written by Augustus Toplady, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. One of the verses says very specifically, Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no languor or no diminishing? No. These for sins could not atone. I can't make myself right with God by crying, by shedding tears. Do tears sometimes accompany a real change of mind? Obviously they do. But tears themselves are not the same as repentance. Listen to Hebrews 12, verses 15 to 17, having to do with Esau. 
The writer of Hebrews says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, key word in this context, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place or no room for repentance, though he sought for it, the blessing, with tears. Why didn't Esau find room for repentance? I can tell you why, biblically. Because even though he shed tears, his heart was unchanged toward his brother. Listen to what Genesis 27.41 says. Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother. That's not repentance. That's not biblical change of mind about what he should or shouldn't do. That's why he couldn't find room in his heart for repentance. So tears. And then reformation. Too many people equate repentance with personal reformation. Instead of, now I get it, they say, now I'll get it together. I'll clean my life up. I'll change my ways. And then, then, God will have to accept me. No, it doesn't work that way. We don't get right with God by personal reformation. And most, if not all of us, can testify to the fact that reformation, especially in the month of January, (laughs) doesn't last very long, right? How many times have we made New Year's resolutions that lasted just a couple of weeks at the most? Matt Chandler So terrific uh, pastor and preacher says, you will never by your behavior put God in your debt. You have nothing to barter with. And as sinners, we don't. All we can count on, all we can claim is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Finally, what part does repentance play in our lives today? Let's think through three areas very quickly. First of all, repentance comes into play today on the national level. America needs to repent. So does China. America needs to repent. We know that God has been so good to us from day one of our nation to the present day. And yet, we flaunt His grace. We reject His teachings. We think we can survive doing it our way and survive without His judgment. And I don't know today if God has given America 40 more days or 40 more years. I just know that if He wants to send punishment on us, He has every right. Would you agree with me? Every right. Listen to this famous quote from our country's past. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved many years in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. 
We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. You know where that came from? Abraham Lincoln. April 30th, 1863. His proclamation for a national day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer. That was the first national day of prayer in our country's history. That's what he said. We have forgotten. Oh, do we need repentance. We as a country need to change our mind about God and our relationship as a nation to God. Secondly, relating to disobedience in the life of a believer. How about our own personal lives? Was God's people going back to our nation? Are we part of the solution or part of the problem? I think some of both. One black preacher put it this way, and I love this. If all the sleeping folks will wake up, and all the lukewarm folks will fire up, and all the disgruntled folks will sweeten up, and all the discouraged folks will cheer up, and all the depressed folks will look up, and all the estranged folks will make up, and all the gossiping folks will shut up, and all the dry bones will shake up, and all the true soldiers stand up, and all the church members pray up, and if the Savior of all will be lifted up, then we can have the greatest renewal the world has ever known. I think it's past time, way past time, for many of us as God's people to get serious, serious about sin in our lives. We've been way too apathetic. Way too caught up in the world's idea of morality. And we've allowed ourselves to think that sin is no big deal. That it just happens. Well, so does discipline from the hand of a loving, gracious God. Here's how Paul, the apostle, explains the practical side of God's grace. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, what? That denying ungodliness and worldly pleasures, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Sadly, some professing believers will tell us preachers and others of God's people who are wanting to honor God with their godly lifestyle, don't tell me how to live my life. I'm covered by the blood. No, repentance means that when I sin, and I know what sin is, so do you, I confess it to God, I claim His forgiveness, and I say, in effect, now I get it. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And I claim that forgiveness and that cleansing. And Lord, because You're so kind and good to me to forgive all my sin, I want my life to be a testimony of Your love and grace. But here's what happens. And I'll use myself as a personal illustration. We say, oh, now I get it. But then we forget it. And what happens is that we struggle again and again and again with the same kinds of sins. In my case, the one I want to share with you is that I so often get disappointed in what's happening in my life. And I get discouraged. But you need to know today, and I need to remember, I need to get it, that discouragement is sin. 
Why? Because it means I'm not counting on the courage God can give me to live the way He wants me to live. I'm not trusting in Him to work everything out according to His perfect will. So that brings us to the final matter of salvation through Jesus Christ. Do I need to repent of sins in order to be saved? No. Not that way. I need to repent, change my mind about one sin. The sin of unbelief. Jesus said concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, why? Because they believe not on Me. That's, that's the critical sin. When I realize by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that I am a sinner in need of a Savior, that I've been rejecting Jesus Christ instead of receiving Him, when I get it, it means that I've come to understand who God is, who Jesus is, what Jesus did for me on the cross. And I claim that as my only hope and my sure hope of eternal life in heaven when I die. I turn around in my thinking from assuming that I'm good enough, that I can get this done. I'll just change my ways. I'll reform and God will love me. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, the Apostle Paul was so thankful for how the Thessalonian Christians, quote, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's how it always is. We turn to Him, and as a result, we turn away from those things that are displeasing to Him. After I trust Jesus as my Savior, by faith alone, because of the grace of God alone, through Jesus alone, then changes begin in my life by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Then step by step, I get it. And my life changes. And there's fruit that can be recognized by others. For sure, biblical repentance is a major turnaround. Some of you will remember the... uh, 2010 movie The Blind Side. Sandra Bullock won uh, Academy Award as the best actress for her portrayal of Leanne Tui. The film chronicles a Christian family who took in a homeless young man and gave him the chance to reach his God-given potential. Michael Ower not only dodged the hopelessness of his dysfunctional upbringing in the inner city, but became a first-round NFL draft pick for the Baltimore Ravens in 2009. Just a couple of years ago at a fundraiser, Sean Tui noted that the transformation of his family and of Michael's life started with two words. They were driving down the road on a cold November day and saw up ahead this young black man walking in a t-shirt and shorts. Leanne uttered two words that changed their world and his. She said to her husband, turn around. They turned the car around, put Michael in their vehicle, and ultimately adopted him into their family. And that's exactly what God is in the business of doing. Turning lives around. Why? Because He wants us to be part of His forever family. I'll close with this illustration this morning. Max Lucado tells the story of a man who'd been a slob most of his life. He just could not comprehend the logic of neatness. 
Why make a bed if you're going to sleep in it again the next night? You ever had those thoughts? I have. Why put the lid on the toothpaste tube if you're going to take it off again in the morning? He admitted to being compulsive about his OCD, his obsessive clutter disorder. But then he got married. His wife was very patient. She said she didn't mind his habits as long as he didn't mind sleeping on the couch. Well, he did mind. So he began to change. He told others that he enrolled in a 12-step program for slobs. A physical therapist helped him rediscover the muscles used to hang clothes up in the closet. And putting the toilet paper back on the roll, on the holder. His nose was reintroduced to the smell of pine salt. Before long, he was a new man, but then the test came. His wife left for a week. At first, he reverted to the old man. He figured, I can be a slob for six days, and then I'll get it all put together on day seven. But something strange happened. He could no longer relax with dirty dishes in the sink or towels flung on the bathroom floor or clothes on the floor in the bedroom or sheets piled up like a mountain on the bed. What happened? Very simple. He'd been exposed to a higher standard of living. When we get it spiritually, is when we realize God has called me and you to a higher standard, the highest standard of living. Perfect holiness. Not possible in ourselves, but it is possible through the finished work of Jesus, the Son of God on the cross. So, do you get it? Have you gotten it by faith? Are you getting it each day as you learn more about Jesus? Do you and I get that there is a day-to-day victory in Jesus that's only possible for the asking by faith as we walk with Him in 2015? If not, I challenge you to do some after-thinking this morning. We're going to sing a closing song this morning, a very well-known hymn, Victory in Jesus. It talks about repenting of our sin, particularly the sin of unbelief. But I want to challenge you to pray a prayer while the song is going or just after the song as I close in prayer. And the prayer is this. It comes from Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, test me, and know my thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Would you stand as we sing this closing song this morning? I heard an old, old story How a Savior came from glory How He gave His life on Calvary To save a wretch like me I heard about His groaning Of His precious blood's atoning Then I repented of my sin And won the victory Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. 
He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing. How he made the lame to walk again and cause the blind to see. And then I cried, Dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the... Sing it out now. Oh, victory! Jesus, my Savior forever, He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and He bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Father, thank You for that cleansing, for that change of mind that the Holy Spirit can bring. Lord, thank You for victory in Jesus. Lord, help us to get it each day and to walk with You in sweet communion and fellowship throughout this entire year. And when we do sin, Lord, help us to come to You and claim Your forgiveness. And thank You, and thank You, and thank You for that precious blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses from all sin. And it's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.